0: We're uh, almost or just over halfway through this series uh, that we're doing through this term that we're calling Living in Exile. And the uh, basic idea running through all of it is that living as a follower of Jesus in a culture that doesn't remotely hold the same values or the same morality or or the same view of the purpose of life as we do uh, is just incredibly tough, isn't it? Uh, I mean, it's a challenge. Uh, Agreed on that? Absolutely, we we, we agree on that. It's just hard work, day in, day out. And so, what we're doing is working through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, which gives us just this brilliant example of how to not just survive and kind of cling on by your fingernails when you're in that kind of a situation, but how to actually thrive and excel and fly when you find yourself in a place of exile. However, as we've been seeing uh, over the last few weeks, this certainly isn't easy and will inevitably create a whole lot of tension with the people around us. Now that tension really kind of bubbles up and comes to the fore uh, in the story we're going to be looking at today. Uh, If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. While you're finding it, let me just kind of give you a bit of the background to to catch you up uh, with where we join the story. This particular story we're, we're looking at today, it takes place 60 years after Daniel chapter 1. So Daniel, the key player in it all, uh, by now he is an old man. He's upwards of 70 or 80 years old. You also need to know that between chapter 5 and chapter 6, Babylon has been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire and a brand new king is now on the throne. And it's at that moment that we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 1. This is what it says, Darius the Mede, uh, who's the new king about town, Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. Now, just to say, This brand new empire is the largest empire in human history up until this point, stretching from Egypt in the south and the west right up to modern-day Russia in the north and then as far east as the Indus River in what is now Pakistan. It's this wide, expansive kingdom. And so Darius, that's the king, decided to appoint officers 120 of them, which gives you a glimpse in terms of the scale of the empire, he appoints these officers to help rule over this vast terrain. Verse 2, the king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. So here's Daniel in his 70s or 80s. And not only has he lived through two empires and at least three or four kings, but he's still at it in his old age and he's doing better than he's ever done before in his job. To the point the king turns to him and says, look, I want you, Daniel, to run my entire empire for me. Verse 4, then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way that Daniel was handling government affairs, but they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn. Daniel was faithful, always responsible, completely trustworthy. And so they concluded Our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the rules of his religion. And so very similar, if you remember the story from a few chapters ago, chapter three, with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, Daniel's co-workers are jealous of his success and so they hatched this plan to kind of entrap him. Verse 6, so the administrators, the high officers, they went to the king and said, long live King Darius. We are all in agreement, we administrators, officials, high officers, advisors and governors, we all agree that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now, your majesty, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. And so, King Darius signed the law. It's like, they're appealing to the king's vanity. Like, let everyone treat you like a god for 30 days and see how it feels. And the king falls for it hook, line and sinker. It's potentially a death sentence for Daniel. Yet in spite of that, watch what happens. Verse 10, when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, what did he do? He went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room, with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Now, just by waving aside, the experts suggest that Daniel's practice here was based on Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple back in 1 Kings chapter 8, where Solomon prays if your people, O God, if your people, Israel, are defeated by their enemies because they have sinned against you, which was very much the situation facing Daniel and his compatriots here in today's story, if your people are defeated in this way and if they turn to you and pray toward this temple, which was what Daniel was doing, in today's story. If they turn and pray toward this temple and acknowledge, that your, acknowledge your name and turn from their sins, then, our oh God, hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and return them to this land that you gave their ancestors. Can you imagine reading those words after you've been dragged away into exile. It's like your temple's gone, your city's wiped out, your nation is destroyed. Can you imagine reading that scripture from hundreds of years before? Well Daniel knew the scriptures really well and it's more than likely that this particular text helped to shape his whole daily prayer rhythm. Now all that being said, those verses don't actually say thou shalt open the east window and pray towards Jerusalem three times a day. In fact, there's no command anywhere in the Old Testament that I've found that instructs us to pray three times a day or to pray towards Jerusalem for that matter. This is just something that Daniel chose to do as part of his daily spiritual disciplines. Now, in many respects, this story, unlike way back in chapter one, if you can remember back then. If you remember, it's all about compromise and how Daniel chose not to compromise uh, in Babylon. This story isn't about a sin that Daniel will not commit. It's more about a practice that he will not omit. And if you think about it, it would have been incredibly, incredibly easy for him. I mean, if you're Daniel, you're, you're a pensioner, You've been faithful your whole life. It would have been so easy, wouldn't it? Just to take a month off prayer? Or you know what? You don't even need to take a month off. Just don't pray by the window. just pray quietly in your head, pray in secret for 30 days. I mean, it's no big deal. Surely that's OK and understandable in the circumstances. But apparently for Daniel, it was a huge deal. For Daniel, it was worth dying in order to live out his faith, not just in private, but also in public. Which I think you'd have to agree is both incredibly, incredibly challenging and incredibly inspiring in equal measure. I watch what happens next. Verse 11. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and, surprise, surprise, found him praying and asking for God's help. And so they went straight to the king and reminded him very kindly about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied, that decision stands. It is an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, That man, Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your Majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no law that the king's signs can be changed. And so at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, may your God whom you serve so faithfully rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, long live the king. Now, if you, yeah, a bit of celebration is called for there. Now, if you want evidence that Daniel was incredibly godly, I think you get it right here, because if I'm Daniel, I can think of several things that I'd have shouted out to the king in that moment, and long live the king wouldn't have made my top 10 things to shout out. But Daniel, as we've been seeing, is altogether more righteous and godly than I am. He politely greets the king, and then he gives this amazing explanation of why he is still alive. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me, for I've been found innocent in his sight, And I've not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a single scratch was found on him, for he had trusted in his God. Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. The lions leapt on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel for he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Okay, let's not blink and miss this. The ending of this story, and I know we're familiar with this story so we can sometimes just kind of miss its power. The ending of this story is absolutely huge. First of all, Darius the leader of the biggest empire in all of history up until that point writes this letter to his entire kingdom saying that everyone should tremble before the god of daniel because he's the living god and he will endure forever so that is a massive win right there but that's not all cuz that last line is hugely significant all of this happened it says during the reign of darius and the reign of cyrus the Persian. Now, if you're reading on a kind of old-fashioned Bible that actually has pages and things, if you look down to the the, the bottom of the page, uh, you'll see some footnotes probably where it'll tell you that, that this last line could be translated, Darius, that is Cyrus the Persian. And so a lot of scholars think it's possible that Darius and Cyrus are actually one and the same person, because back then, kings in the ancient Near East would often have more than one name, so it could be referring to the same person. Now, what's the big deal about all of this? Well, right at the end of 2 Chronicles, uh, now bear with me in this, it's it's worth hanging on in there, right at the end of 2 Chronicles, we read that in the first year of King Cyrus, Of Persia. So, parallel with the story we just read, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what the king Cyrus of Persia says, the Lord the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem which is in Judah and any of you who are his people may go there for this task and may the Lord your God be with you. How amazing is that? Because of the influence of Daniel in the midst of exile and others like Ezra, Nehemiah and and Jeremiah, Darius sends out this letter to the entire empire saying everyone must revere this one true creator God and Cyrus, who may or may not be the same person, but either way he sends out another letter to the Hebrew people saying whoever wants to return to your homeland, you're now free to go. He gives permission to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the nation from the ground up, which if you remember fulfills the prayer of Solomon all of those years before and presumably the prayers of Daniel that he's been praying three times a day, as was his usual custom. It's like all the way through the book of Daniel, the writer of this book wants us to see that the faithful prayers of God's people are powerful and effective. And even when situations look incredibly bleak, God hears the cries of his people and in a moment can turn things around. Now don't worry, we'll come back to look at this theme of prayer in a few weeks time. But we're going to park that there for the rest of our time this morning and In the rest of the time, I want to unpack one of the other major themes that we see kind of running through the story of Daniel. As we've been seeing throughout this whole series week after week, one of the main threads kind of tying, weaving the whole story together is the influence that Daniel and his friends had while living in the midst of this deeply pagan culture. And that's certainly what we see being played out in today's story in chapter six. So I think the question for us to look at for the rest of our time today is, okay, how do we actually exert influence in a kingdom of God kind of way over the city that we live in and call home? How do we exert influence like Daniel did in Babylon? Now, before we get into this, just need to say, let's be real about this. Most of us in the room, myself included, will have little or no influence on the culture of Birmingham much less on the culture of the UK or the whole Western world. So, just to manage expectations here. But that being said, there may be one or two people in the room here or across our other sites who at least have the potential to influence a bit wider. Maybe some of you need to study hard and get your master's and your PhD and work your way up to being a professor uh, in one of the universities, here in Birmingham. Some of you need to get involved at kind of grassroots level in local politics, maybe in 20 or 30 years time, run to be elected as an MP. Someone needs to write a novel or make the next Kendrick Lamar record, just to show how current in touch I am. Seriously, whatever dream it is that God has put in the back of your minds, no matter how crazy it seems right now, I just want to say, please, please, please chase after it. And if God is in it, we are behind you hundred percent of the way. Now, although most of us probably aren't called to that, here's the thing. All of us have some kind of a reach and some kind of influence to our family, to our friends, the people you work with in your office, the the people that you live by, the, the people across the road or across the hall from you. If you're a parent, certainly to your children. Or to frame it another way, it's like all of us, every single one of us, have at least a small sphere of influence around us. The question for all of us then is, how on earth do we grow in that influence? Anyone interested in the answer to that one? Anyone like to be a little more of an influencer, see if you nodding heads. People are really enthusiastic about some of you. You're on this. Well, I think Daniel's example gives us three things to be getting on with. I'm going to spend a couple of minutes on each: excellence, character, and faithfulness. If you want to grow an influence to the people around you, you start by focusing on these three things. First off, is this idea of excellence in your vocation? Look again at verse three. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. And if you recall that line from back in chapter one, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned Daniel and his friends, he found them 10 times better than all of the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And so, The reason that Daniel rose to influence in Babylon wasn't just because of God's favor, it was also because he was pretty good at his job. Look, if you want to influence the people around you, it certainly helps to be really, really good at whatever it is you do. So, whether it's raising kids or teaching science or writing poetry, or running a business, or producing music. Whatever your thing is, you've got to become a craftsman, a maestro, a scholar, an expert in your field. Really, really, really good at whatever it is you do, even if it takes an entire lifetime to get there. It's that famous line in the book of Ecclesiastes, whatever your hand finds to do, you know the second line? do it with all your might, whatever your hand finds to do. So big or small, whether you're at school right now learning algebra or you're the CEO of a FTSE 100 company, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Do it with passion and love and skill and energy excellence. And the reality is when you're really good at whatever it is you do, people will start taking notice and you'll grow in influence. So that's the first thing. The second thing we see here is Daniel's depth of character. Look in at verse 4. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling government affairs. So do well in your job, you'll get influence. doesn't mean people will love you, there will be people who'll be jealous of you and will oppose you, so I'm not promising just an easy life. We see these people who were looking to accuse him, they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn, because Daniel was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. I love that. You see, some people aren't corrupt like they have pretty good integrity, but they're kind of just late for everything and irresponsible and drop the ball the whole time. Other people are like on it and 10 minutes early and they have the Excel spreadsheet right there ready and prepared, but they're pretty arrogant and selfish and rude with it. Not Daniel there was nothing to criticize or condemn at all. It's like MI5 scrutinizing every single area of your life from top to bottom for a whole year and coming up with nothing. Like, we've tried really hard, but we can't find anything. That Their, their character is impeccable. The only thing of note that we can find is they pray a lot. I mean, imagine that. If you want to grow in influence to the people around you, you don't have to be perfect, but you do have to back up excellence in your vocation with a life that makes people stop in their tracks and pay attention. Because at the end of the day, as someone wiser and cleverer than me once put it, character is destiny. Your character will catch up with you at some point. If there's a gap between your public life and your private life, between your excellence at your job or your work or whatever it is you do and your character, it's only a matter of time until it all comes out. And at the end of the day, that's all people will probably remember you for. It's only a matter of time and your character is your destiny. Now here's the thing, our culture, our society, I think it's fair to say it's thrown off all external authority, God, the Bible, church, tradition, parents, everything and so we're left with nothing to guide us but our own personal feelings and that is never going to end well. I mean, where people don't have a moral or a spiritual framework or any kind of authority they submit to, it's surely no surprise that the news is just littered with one scandal after another, which means that character stands out more now than perhaps ever before. And I'll suggest that presents us with a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. If you want to influence the people around you be like Jesus, be a person of integrity, honesty, humility, put the needs of others above your own, be kind, be faithful, be reliable, show up on time, encourage others, be quick to forgive, never gossip, Whatever the thing is, just just stick at it. Be a good husband or wife. Be a good parent. Be a good child. Handle money well. Guard your sexual purity. Just basic biblical wisdom and you will do well. So if you want to grow in influence, and a few of you in the room do, number one, pursue excellence in whatever you do second pursue depth of character and then the third thing is faithfulness. As we said in verse one, Daniel is upwards of 70 years old at this point. He's lived through the rise and fall of two empires and at least three or four kings and in old age he is still at it. It's like if you want to influence the people around you You do need to be faithful over the long haul. Now, we all know this, but our generation wants it it all right now. We grew up with uh, the microwave and email and TV on demand and Amazon Prime and all of that stuff. We're so used to the world at our fingertips, everything instant. The problem is, some things will never be able to speed up. Things like character, relationships, a healthy marriage, parenting, legacy, excellence, and skill in your job, or whatever it is you do. That this stuff takes not years, it takes decades, it takes a whole lifetime. Every day you're faithfully at it, doing the best you can. You know, I love that line in the book of Hebrews. Where it says, imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. That, that word faith can also be translated faithfulness. To, to have faith, at least part of it, is to be faithful. Faithful in every single area of your life. Faithful to God to stay true, to not get sucked into compromise. Faithfulness in your community your spouse, if you have one, to your family, to to those that you're in relationship with, to the church. Faithfulness to God's calling in your life, sometimes just to put down roots and stay where you are. Please, whatever you do, don't underestimate the power of quiet faithfulness over a whole lifetime. So if you want to grow an influence there's no kind of magic formula, but here at the very least are some things to be starting with, excellence, character and faithfulness. Now that said, Daniel isn't just about influence in general, actually he's about a very specific kind of influence. It's like you have this theme of influence that runs all the way through the book, but then each chapter kind of teases out a unique angle on it. So, chapter one, it's compromise. Chapter two, it's calling. Chapter three is non participation, and so on. So, what's this chapter's unique contribution? Well, I think it's to do with our witness. Daniel's like this constant witness to the one true creator God. It's not like I want to excel in my career and get to the top just for the sake of kind of power and dominance. No, for him it's all about God. It's being a witness to him right in the thick of Babylon. Like everybody knows about Daniel's face. Daniel's not preaching on the street corner. There's no tattoo of John 3:16 on his forearm. There's no social media hashtag but in whatever way appropriate, Daniel's witness isn't private, it's public. It's out there. Everybody knows about his faith. What about you? Could the same be said about you? Could the same be said about me? And, and I don't mean here in this room. I, I'm, I'm guessing most of you have already kind of figured out that I follow Jesus. I mean, not not here, What about with my neighbours? What about with my friends that aren't part of this community? Because this is a central part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You tell other people about him. Now, you may beg to differ, but I think it's fair to say that we've lost a lot of ground in this particular area over the last few years, I mean, it's hard, isn't it? Because people don't want anything to do with faith in the public domain. It, it, it's just kind of like, believe whatever you want to believe. You want to believe in Jesus or the force or the flying spaghetti monster, whatever that, that's fine. Just keep it to yourself, okay? Don't, don't drag it into work with you. Don't drag it into the classroom. Just, just keep it to yourself, And that's not to mention HR and all the different rules and regulations in the workplace these days that make all of this a bit of a minefield. And so we just feel this kind of overwhelming emotional and social pressure to just shut up, go to church and keep it to yourself. It's like our culture has made us think that witnessing or evangelizing is a bit of a dirty word which is absolutely ridiculous because everybody is evangelizing something. Whether you're preaching the gospel of Jesus or the gospel of Marie Kondo or the gospel of Game of Thrones or the gospel of the new Drake record, again just to show how current I am, just imagine what Google tells you, or the gospel of money or the gospel of sexual freedom or the gospel of whatever your thing is, Everybody is out there preaching something and constantly trying to sell us something. I think the only difference between them and us is we have the best news possible on offer. We have Jesus, the one thing, the one person, the one relationship, the one reality that at the end of the day does not ever let you down. Now, even in a city like ours, I think deep down people are hungry and thirsty for Jesus. They just might not realise that's what the appetite's for. They, They think it's for more money or more stuff or more success or more fame or more sex or more romance or more whatever. But deep down, we cannot escape the fact that human beings were made in the image of God, created born hardwired by the maker of the universe for a relationship with him. Most of us here in this room, we know this. It's like we're living the good of this good news. We, we have this gospel in our hands. We're experiencing the life of it day by day. And I think our job, even in exile, in the face of opposition, in the face of intimidation, In the face of low level persecution, our job is still to be a witness to Jesus in our city. Look, if we believe that Jesus is the King, and if we in our heart of hearts believe that He's really all that matters in the end, then we need to be known as a follower of Jesus in private and in public. And I think. We need to believe a bit more for our friends and for our family, for our neighbors, for the people we love and care about. We need to be believing for their salvation. And so as I draw to a close, I just want to ask you, who do you have faith for? Is there a name? Is there a, a face that comes to mind right now? I'm praying there would be. Who do you believe for? Who's God called you to be a witness to? you think of anyone? My prayer is that you, like Daniel, would unflinchingly, with humility, with grace, with relationship, you would be a compelling witness in public to the people around you.